and uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20, we're moving right along. Um, now this evening we're going to talk about Hezekiah. Well, we've been talking about him for several weeks and we still have at least one more week. But tonight we're going to talk about, toward the end, we're going to talk about Hezekiah's healing. So if someone were to ask you the question of who was it in the Bible that prayed and the Lord gave him 15 more years to live. That was Hezekiah and we're in that section. But before we get to that section, uh, we really kind of went through rather quickly the end of chapter 19. So I want to go back and go through some of those things and pick up some of the details. But before we begin, I want to have a word of prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how good is your word. It not only, Father, tells us about you, but it tells us about us. It tells us the truth of salvation. It tells us the truth that once we are believers, Lord, how to live for you. And all of these things, even in the Old Testament, are examples for us. Give us wisdom, Lord, and the power to apply all these things to live a life that is pleasing to you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I did want to do one thing before we get started in our study of Second Kings. And it's not going to go very long, but as we all know about the fighting going on in Israel and uh, being attacked by Hamas, I'm not going to go into this. I'm not doing any politics, but I did want to look at Gaza in First and Second Kings. Now, there's not a lot of references to Gaza, but I thought I would at least take a look at that. Um, so as we go on then, we, we see where Gaza is located. There's Israel. Israel is really only as big as the state of New Jersey, which is not very big at all. Um, you see Gaza there, and it's about 50 miles southwest uh, of Jerusalem. Um, it, it is mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned numerous places in numerous books, but I just want to really keep this. Well, did we see any mention of Gaza in First and Second Kings? And the answer is yes. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 24, we'll see a reference to Gaza in regard to Solomon's kingdom, how big his kingdom was. And over the time, of course of time with these divided kingdoms, we, we do see other nations coming in and taking some of that land away from them. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 24, it says, For he had dominion, that's Solomon, over everything west of the river, from Tipsah even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. <clears throat> now, Tipsah is very much north. In fact, it's, it's much norther than we see in this map here it's up by the Euphrates so he had all the way from the Euphrates and it says he had all the way down to Gaza and that would probably uh, include south of Gaza and of course now 
the, the, the land that's much south of Gaza is Israel's, but it's called the Negev, and it's mostly desert. Well, the, the real reason that made me think about Gaza was because it was just two chapters in 2 Kings and about Hezekiah that we read about Gaza. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 8, in talking about the exploits of Hezekiah, this is what it says in verse 8, 2 Kings 18, 8. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza. And its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So let me zoom in here on Gaza. But anyway, Hezekiah had recovered that territory and he had defeated the Philistines. So one thing I want to point out here as we get in a little closer, we see the Gaza Strip. You see Gaza and the Gaza Strip. It is not, it is a strip. It is not very big. It's about 25 miles long and only about seven miles wide in certain places. That's the area that we're talking about that this, this uh, military campaign is now uh, taking part in. Um, it, this was the area of the Philistines and it was even north. You can see Ascalon and also Ashdod. That was part of... Uh, the Philistines. In fact, I'll zoom in a little bit more. Um, so you see Gaza, then Ashkelon. And by the way, Ashkelon received some of the, the missiles, if you remember hearing that. Ashdod. And then you see Ekron and Goth. And those are on either side of Bet Shemesh. So those are some of the uh, lands and cities that identify with the Philistines in Gaza. But Gaza is really what this is all about. Now, one of the things that I want to say is, what's so important about Gaza? Well, Gaza is part of what's called the Shephelah in Israel. Shephelah means low land. It's not in the mountainous areas, but it's in the lowlands where it's agriculture, it's green, it's really good. It's a great place. It's, Israel is not all desert. And... Uh, you could see down there where I have Gaza and the uh, Gaza Strip. So it, it is a piece of land that is very much desired by all. And it was given to the, Philist, uh, the Philistines, I'm sorry. It was given to the uh, Palestinians some time ago. And, of course, there is a, a lot of problem with the 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 Palestinians being so close because as soon as they got the Gaza Strip, they said, death to Israel. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say too is uh, when I was over in Israel, we uh, stayed one night in a kibbutz. And you may not be familiar from, with what a kibbutz is. And by the way, not the kibbutz that I stayed at, but a kibbutz like it is where the, they, the uh, Hamas had come in and they had uh, just killed many. They had taken many uh, as hostages. But I just thought I'd show you some pictures of what a kibbutz is. It's, it's just a community. It's a, it's a commune and a community. Um, and they don't all live in one house. Some of them are just very separate little houses. So here's a picture of it. In fact, uh, I stayed in one of those um, rooms there. I can't remember just exactly which one it was, but I stayed in one of those. And it's actually very pretty. And uh, 
has some palm trees growing. And um, the one thing that I do remember about this was that it was during the uh, soccer playoffs. And I don't know how they did it, but they had a big screen. I mean, huge screen. And everybody was out on the, the grass and watching the soccer playoffs and all of that. Um, but this is what a kibbutz is. And, of course, uh, it's a peaceful place. It's a, it's a commune. Um, but as we know, that's what Hamas had come in to a nearby kibbutz to the Gaza Strip and had uh, taken over, killed many, and even taken hostages. So that is um, just what I wanted to say about Gaza in reference to First and Second Kings. Okay, now let's just review. Where are we in Second Kings? What have we learned about Hezekiah? Well, we did learn about Hezekiah in the sense that he was faithful to the Lord and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, which was a good thing. And you remember he reconstructed the water, uh, putting it, bringing it into the city so that another uh, nation that came against them couldn't stop the water and drive them uh, to die by thirst. And then also, too, it didn't replenish that military that was outside of the wall. And so that was Hezekiah that made that tunnel. We saw pictures of that. But then Hezekiah paid tribute to Sennacherib and kind of almost like one step forward and one step back. Well, then at some point, Sennacherib sent his officials to Jerusalem, if you remember that. And it was very harsh language. Are you going to be... a um, faithful to us? Or are you going to be faithful to supposedly your God? Or even Egypt was thrown in there. And the, the verbiage became more and more intense, especially towards God. It was like none of the other gods could stop us. Do you really think that your God would be able to stop us? Well, after this, and it was reported to Hezekiah, he tore his clothes in mourning, and then they sent to go talk to Isaiah. So Hezekiah set, sent Eliakim to talk to Isaiah. Isaiah's message was, do not be afraid uh, because the Lord will intervene. And you're thinking, well, this is a lot of uh, people. There's a big army coming against us. Uh, they've defeated all these other nations. They've taken the northern kingdom and now they're at our doorstep. But the Lord told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, don't be afraid. And he goes on to say that the Lord said, I will send Sennacherib a rumor. And not only will I send him a rumor, but we will take care of the situation. And Sennacherib will go back to his land. And then he will actually die. And then the Lord confirmed it all in chapter 19 by saying, I will defend Jerusalem. Well, we also learned last week, and this is what I want to go over a little bit, and we will. We also learned that the angel of the Lord struck 185,000 warriors who were coming up against Jerusalem. And when the rest of the military, including Sennacherib, woke up that morning and saw all these dead. They got out of there. Sennacherib went back to Nineveh, and he was killed with the sword, as was mentioned 
in verse 37, by his two sons. And so that's where I really want to pick it up. I want to talk a little bit more about the angel of the Lord and Sennacherib's sons. We'll, we'll begin with that and then we'll go to this next part where Hezekiah becomes mortally ill. He becomes deathly sick. All right, so if you would, just go back to chapter 19, 2 Kings chapter 19. And we want to look at verse 35. And here it mentions the angel of the Lord. And as I mentioned before, I believe, and, and many good commentaries and scholars believe, that the angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His pre-incarnate ministry. Pre-incarnate means before he took on a body uh, at his birth. Um, and so this was his ministry in the Old Testament. One of the things that's remarkable about this is that even though Israel rejected him because they did not know him, he had been with them throughout all of their history in Israel. We see him in the wilderness with them, leading them. And we see various times he was uh, communicating with them. And here is an instance in where the angel of the Lord uh, comes in and he destroys 185,000 warriors. Now, why would we say he's the angel of the Lord? Well, for one reason, it's very clear that he, whoever this is, he's divine. And that only gives you three choices. You can't say the angels, but it's either God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, if you'll turn there, Genesis 16, 13 is one of the passages that we derive the fact that he, the angel of the Lord, was deity, divine, God, is when he was appearing and talking to Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and tells her to go back and prophesize uh, to her what's going to happen. She's with child. And then in verse 13, she says this. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? So she knew, not that he was an angel, but that he was a divine person, a divine person. We see various other places in the scriptures where the angel of the Lord speaks to Israel and says, I brought you out of Egypt. No, God brought them out of Egypt. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. It's not a contradiction because the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, is deity. And so he did bring them out as well as the Father. And so we know that he's divine. But what if he is just God? What if there are no members of the Trinity? Well, then there's an awful lot of scripture that we have to rethink, one of them being the baptism of Jesus. As we said on the Sunday, by the way, we've started the study of the Holy Spirit on Sunday mornings, adult Sunday school. So I really would encourage you to come on out to that. It's a, it's a uh, 
it's a great study, and it's uh, biblical, and, and the Holy Spirit is a subject that many don't understand who he is, and so we're going to go over that. We're going to go over his ministries. Anyway, the baptism was when Jesus was in the water. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove and, and lighted upon him, and then the voice of the Father spoke from heaven. Now, that shows the Trinity, three persons, yet one God. I know, yeah, I, yeah, I know, he's in essence one God, but he subsists in three persons. Those are true facts. I don't know how that works. I just believe it, and I believe it in simplicity. But there are those who believe that, no, it's just one. It's a oneness. So it's one God who wears three hats. What does that mean? Well, okay, take, take me for instance. All right, so I wear one hat, that's pastor hat. I wear another hat, that's a husband hat. And then I wear another one, that's a grandfather hat. But I'm still the same person. That's not the Trinity. And if you apply that to the baptism of Jesus, you can only end up saying, well, this is divine ventriloquism. Because we hear the voice say, this is my beloved son. Well, it is not ventriloquism. It is the Trinity. Well, then, how do we know that um, the uh, angel of the Lord is separate? Well, in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 12 uh, and 13, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words. So there you have the father talking with, I believe, the son who has a ministry of the angel of the Lord. Well, he has various ministries, the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he reveals God's will. Um, sometimes he leads and guides. In fact, when it talks about Israel being in the wilderness, being led by the cloud, during the day and a pillar of fire by night. Every time the pillar moved, it says the angel of the Lord moved. And every time the angel of the Lord moved in the pillar, the pillar moved. And so we see his various ministries, but there is a ministry of the angel of the Lord to carry out judgment. And here is one of them where he he destroyed 185,000 warriors. Um, in, in 2 Samuel, we don't have to turn there, but there was another instance. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, this is when David um, numbered the people in Jerusalem. And he did not do that in the right way. And the Lord was going to destroy Jerusalem and sent the angel of the Lord. And it says the Lord relented from calamity and said to the angel who destroyed his who was about to destroy the people, it is enough, relax your hand. And it says, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor. So anyway, uh, we, we see that he's divine. We see that he is separate as you would imagine, the separate members of the Trinity. And he has various ministries, and one of the ministries was judgment, carrying out judgment. And here we see that. 
Well, when Sennacherib wakes up and some of the others, and they see 185,000 warriors slain, they're out of there. And one such commentary says, Sennacherib probably recognized this as a supernatural event. In any case, he concluded he should return to Nineveh where he stayed for some time. So that was interesting to me. I guess at that point I was thinking, he was thinking that maybe it was Egypt came up and did that. Um, well, it's a possibility. He may have, he should have recognized it as the hand of the Lord. But I found another comment about it, and it goes along with the Egyptian legend. And here's what that says. The proposal has been advanced that a plague carried by rodents was what struck down the invaders. This is based on an Egyptian legend. Oh, well, then it must be true, which does confirm the general fact of a miraculous de deliverance. However, this says that it owed its victory to field mice and ate up the Assyrians' weapons. Wow. Anyway, um, at this point, uh, it very well could have been that Senate Chair recognized this as judgment from the Lord. Very possible. Or he may have thought it was from Egypt. But at this point, he goes back and he stays there for a time. There's some other things that happened with Hezekiah. There's a little uncertainty in the chronology. You'll see that. But there's a little uncertainty. But one thing that will happen after a period is he will be killed by his two sons. Nice, nice sons. Well, you know, we were just talking um, in our worship service about those who were sinners the law shows that we're sinners, and there were father killers, mother killers. Well, that was all over the Old Testament. So some 20 years later, two of Sennacherib's own sons assassinated him and successfully escaped to Uratu. But another son, Esar Hadin, succeeded Sennacherib as king. So I was just curious about that. I mean, sometimes you don't see anything else about a particular person in the Bible, but you're still wondering about him. Well, that's what happened to me. And so uh, I found it uh, in, in one of the Bible dictionaries. It talked about E. Sarhaddon. He was the successor of Sennacherim. He was his son. And nothing further is recorded of him in Scripture except that he settled certain colonists in Samaria. So after, after we see the captivity of the northern kingdom in Assyria, the southern kingdom in, in Babylonia, uh, when the decree came that they could go back, the Assyrian, um, E-Sarhaddon, he sends them back to Samaria. And that's found in Ezra chapter 4, verse 2. It says, They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of E-Sarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. So very interesting. So 
not a lot is mentioned, but it's enough. But we do find out a little bit more from other sources. He built many temples and palaces, and the most magnificent of which was the Southwest Palace at Nimrud. That's a place, that's a town, that's not Nimrod, uh, which is a name. Um, and it said that this design copied Solomon's temple, but was much larger. So again, even though we don't see a whole lot about him in the scriptures, it just goes to show what's going on in that time frame and how, how it's absolutely true. I mean, if all of the Old Testament was just nothing but fables, how is it that this king would build his temple and palaces after that which he saw in Solomon's temple? It says, in December, Sennacherib was murdered by two of his sons in 681 after holding Nineveh for 42 days. They were compelled to fly to Ararat or Armenia. Their brother Esarhaddon, who had been engaged in the campaign against Armenia, led his army against them. He was out for blood for his two, two brothers. They were utterly overthrown in a battle near Malatia, and in the following months, Esarhaddon was crowned at Nineveh. Um, just one other. He restored Babylon, conquered Egypt, and received tribute from Manasseh of Judah. Manasseh is Hezekiah's son. He died in October 668 while on the march to suppress an Egyptian re revolt. And uh, anyway, just very, very interesting. So sometimes extra biblical sources, although it's not inspired and we don't know that it's always exactly true, here it undergirds exactly what we find out in the context of the Bible. This is... This is uh, uh, historical documents that, that bonifies the Bible. Okay, so at this point, there's two verses in the book of 2 Chronicles that I think are worthy of our attention. So you can either turn there or you can just wait and I'll read it. So 2 Chronicles 32, 22. So like I said, sometimes it's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle or Second Kings will give details that Second Chronicles doesn't, and sometimes vice versa. Only now we have Isaiah in the mix, and not so much this week, but next week for sure, we're going to see something that Isaiah has about Hezekiah that neither Second Kings nor Second Chronicles has. All right, so in Second Chronicles chapter 32, which we've been following along, Chapter 32, verse 22, it says, and it puts, a, it puts a recap on all of this. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and, and guided them on all sides. So this was this miraculous intervention by the Lord, by the angel of the Lord. And there's something interesting. I read this comment today, and I thought it was very good. They're ranking this miracle. 
right underneath the miracle of the Red Sea. It says this, the events rank, in fact, with Israel's crossing of the Red Sea as one of the two greatest examples of the Lord's intervention to save his people. So the Red Sea was was really the big one, and it keeps being referred to in the Old Testament as God's great deliverance. Well, it wasn't God's only great deliverance. The other one happened under the reign of Hezekiah against the Assyrian king. And then in verse 32, it, it fills in a little bit of the gap. It says, and many, uh, I'm sorry, this is verse 23, chapter 32. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. So the nations took this as a divine intervention because the nations were coming to Jerusalem, giving, uh, giving the Lord gifts and giving Hezekiah gifts, and he was being exalted, and there was nobody messing with him after that, per se. So th this, this is the kind of like the fill-in of Hezekiah's life until we come to chapter 20. We're now in chapter 20 of 2 Kings. And here we find that he becomes deathly sick or mortally ill. <laughs> in those days, verse 1, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Let's stop there a moment. I'll always stop when we come to that phrase. Thus says the Lord. Prophet wasn't speaking for himself. Prophet wasn't saying, hmm, what do they need to hear? The Lord gave him this message. And what was the message? Hezekiah, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Let me just stop there for a moment. So we all probably know individuals at one time or another that a doctor comes in and says, you know, you don't have long to live. And, and um, it's one of the bedside manners is for a doctor to say, well, it's time for you to set your affairs in order, which is a good thing. I, I mean, it's not, it's a good thing that he's telling them. It's not a good thing if a doctor keeps that from a person because there may be things that the Lord wants that person to get right in their life. Maybe, maybe that person doesn't even know Christ, and that'll be the very message that'll bring that person to Christ before he leaves this world. Um, but they are difficult uh, words to hear. And so you shall die and you shall not live. Well, at this point, Hezekiah is going to live up to his reputation that he's going to do what's right. He doesn't always do what's right. And it says this in verse 2, Then he turned his face to the wall. Now, let me just stop there. Now the next two words says, and prayed. Okay, so that's where I'm going. But it says he turned his face to the wall. He didn't turn his face to the wall like Ahab did. You remember what Ahab did? He was pouting. And he, 
this grown man who was the king got on his bed in fetal position and was crying and looking at the wall until Jezebel comes in and says, will you knock it off and act like a man and act like a king? That's not what Hezekiah did, nor was Hezekiah dejected. But we see here he turned to the wall and prayed to the Lord. In other words, he probably was too sick to get up out of bed and go into a private place to pray. So he turned his back on all that were there, including Isaiah, and he prayed. Why was Hezekiah one of the better kings? Because he was a king that prayed. He followed after David's example. So we now get to the prayer. And it's always good, as I said before, every time we come to a prayer, someone's prayer in the Bible, I said, this is a great thing, a great study. And in fact, that's a wonderful study. If you don't know what to do for devotions, go through the prayers of the Bible uh, that people have prayed and, and look at the components of it. Look at their heart. Look at the intensity. And it's sure to move us in our prayer life. And this is what he said. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Well, I suppose we could look at this, and, 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 and he's crying out to the Lord, and, and he's using his own righteousness to, to base this prayer upon, and then he cried but I do think that there is more involved in this, especially as we go on. I think we'll see even more clues. Uh, the first thing I want to point out in this prayer is that he does not ask for longer life. He does not ask for it. Now, maybe that was part of his intent. Maybe you, you, know, you want to read into that. I, I'm not opposed to that. But he doesn't ask for that. He just gives his integrity, that he walked before the Lord. And what, what does that mean? Well, some have said, you know what? Here he is, the king, over the Lord's people. In fact, the Lord is even going to call him, Hezekiah, the leader of my people. So maybe that's what he's really thinking about. He's not thinking about himself and his piety and his self-righteousness. He's thinking about that I have... I have obeyed you, and I have taken care of your people. And maybe now he's wondering, what's, what's going to happen after I'm gone? Number one, his son Manasseh is too young. And so he's praying because what's going to happen to your, your people? Secondly, it very well could be. It depends on when this all happened. Um, you know, uh, when Sennacherib went back to Nineveh, uh, the report is that it was like 20 years before he was killed by his son. So where this takes place, we're not 100% sure. Could, could be before, during, or after. But one of the things that someone said is he could have been weeping bitterly thinking about this because maybe now Sennacherib is going to say, aha. You see, the Lord, his God, didn't deliver him. Sure, he delivered him there in that 
little escapade of 185,000 warriors dying, being destroyed, but God didn't take care of him. So maybe that was on his mind as well. Um, when we interpret the Bible, two things. We have to be careful that we don't make it say what it doesn't say. And as Augustine said, when the Bible speaks, we should speak. When the Bible doesn't speak, we shouldn't speak. However, I still think there's a little bit of a license to speculate in a good way. But when we do that, do not take today and put it back into that time. In other words, today we would expect someone to pray like that. You know, if someone is in prison, a believer is in prison, <clears throat> you know, it could be thought, well, what are they going to do? They're going to say, get me a lawyer. Get me out of here. And yet that's not what happened in the Bible with the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul wasn't doing that at all. Now, he prayed for sure, but it was for God's will to be accomplished. So these people, these people were people of integrity, Paul and I believe Hezekiah. So it's not necessarily that he was crying because it was the end, but he was thinking more of God's people. And we're going to find out that that's exactly why God answered his prayer. And God answered his prayer immediately and favorably. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, hadn't even gone away, the word of the Lord came to him saying, now we know it's going to be favorable. But the idea is there's something, there's something good about this prayer that caused God to answer immediately and then comfort Hezekiah immediately and let him know that it's favorable. And what is it that he was to say and do? He said, return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Now, of course, that's how God would view every king and hold that king responsible. So when they didn't lead the people right, he held them accountable. But it very well could be that that's what Hezekiah was thinking. Doesn't say that. I don't want to go beyond that, but it's a possibility. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. Well, if it wasn't a good prayer, he could have said, well, I heard it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Or, nope, not listening, not listening. I heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. He's seen his heart. And now we are thinking about someone like David, who was a man after God's own heart. It says, behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. So, it was immediate, and he stopped Isaiah before Isaiah left the court, and he said, go back. And, and so there was something about that prayer that did move God, both the prayer and the heart with the tears. And so that suggests that it was a good prayer with not selfish requests, but God honoring and putting God's people first requests. Um, now, what about the temple in the third day? That's very interesting. Uh, Hezekiah would be healed, 
and he would go to the temple on the third day. So what does that mean? Well, one of the things it could mean is that he will be better and well enough to go to the temple on the third day. So he'll be well enough. So he's going to be healed. And whether he's healed immediately or it takes three days, uh, you know, that's something to figure out. But we also find out it could have been his custom to make frequent visits to the temple, the house of the Lord. And it was also, a, someone said, it's also a reminder, Hezekiah, do you realize you were just healed? Would you not give thanks to the Lord? And this is an important application. We do pray and we pray a lot and we have a prayer chain and God answers prayer. Do we take the time to thank him when he does answer prayer and answer in such a great way as he has done so many times here at Grace Bible Church. So let's make sure we thank him as well. But anyway, he was told to go there on the third day, but he's not done. Verse six, Isaiah says to him, speaking for the Lord, I will add 15 years to your life. So again, technically, Hezekiah didn't ask for more years, but perhaps it was something on his mind thinking, my son is too young. Sennacherib could, could boast that he was able to defeat our God. And so it'd be great to have more time. It says, I will add 15 years to your life. And then it says, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, th that verse makes us wonder about the chronology of all this. Some have said, okay, this was before Sennacherib came and the 185,000 were destroyed by the angel of the Lord. Maybe. It also could be that that happened, but perhaps he, th there was always the fear that sooner or later Sennacherib was coming back because he lived for another 20 years. So I, I don't know for sure, but anyway, it doesn't matter. When God says to you, I will defend this city for my own sake and for David's sake, it will be done. Well, we come then to this last part, verse 7 of this section, and it says, Then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs. And they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. So what was wrong with him was some sort of boil or boils, and it was going to kill him. He was mortally ill. Um, and these, these cakes or kind of like a paste of figs was going to heal it. Uh, doing a little research, that was the medicinal diagnosis and plan for those who had boils. And so the question would be then, well, did the Lord heal him or did the figs heal him? The answer could be A, the Lord healed him. And the answer could be both. The Lord healed him miraculously and through natural means. And we'll discuss that at the end of this. So someone writes this. <clears throat> Uh, fig poultices, meaning these pastes, 
were a common treatment in the ancient world as a remedy for boils. And then on another note, in accordance with those orders, this paste of figs was mixed and applied to Hezekiah's ulcerated sore. Maybe it was an open sore. Maybe he was getting infected. Maybe things were starting to shut down. And he recovered. Although God chose to work through the accepted medical standards of the day, it is certain that ultimately the healing was affected by the divine word. And isn't that true? You know, I don't want to give away my application at the end because I always do that. But if the Lord does heal through medicine, isn't he giving the doctors wisdom to diagnose the right medicine? And isn't God the one that gave us the bodies, these miraculous bodies that can heal themselves? And when the, the hand of the Lord is upon that person and brings healing and the people of God pray, it's God. Well, there you go. I just gave the application away. Not totally. All right. So he is now healed and he's getting 15 years more to his life. Well, spoiler alert. Close your ears if you don't want to hear this. So he has 15 more years, but those 15 more years aren't necessarily the most blessed. Okay. So we're going to be seeing that next time. All right. Now, verse 8, Hezekiah is going to ask for a sign. And at first we might be going, what? You know, the word of Isaiah isn't good enough for him? What? The word of the Lord isn't good enough for him? Well, I believe he asks for a sign because there was a king before him by the name of Ahaz, who didn't want anything to do with the sign. And the Lord had to give him a sign, and it didn't look too good on that king. And so maybe these kings now who are following the Lord figure that the Lord gives a sign with his confirmation. And that's what we're going to see. Verse 8. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? and that I shall go to the house of the Lord the third day. And I'm not saying it wasn't going through his mind. Man, I am in bad shape. But when the Lord gives you that promise, it is a promise. Verse 9, Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord. So he's going to get a sign. So it's okay. The Lord's not going to rebuke him for asking for a sign. That the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken shall the shadow from the sun, shadow, go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? Well, isn't that interesting? Look at verse 10. So Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to decline 10 steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward 10 steps. In other words, for a shadow to grow longer as the day goes on and the shadows grow longer, that's not really a miracle. Although, can I say this? It is. The very fact that every day we see the sun and every day the sun provides warmth and light for us, that is a miracle. It just happens every day. And of course, science has made that very mundane. But, you know, all of these things are miracles because there's a day coming when this earth and 
the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth. So he's the one who's holding it together by the word of his mouth. And beloved, that is a miracle. We just don't really call it miracles. But we would all say, yeah, but maybe, maybe the agnostic wouldn't call it a miracle. All right, so let's have the shadow recede. Let's have the shadow go backwards. So, again, we're not thinking of Ahaz who... When the Lord said, ask for a sign, he said, oh, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And then that's where the Lord said, all right, I'll give you a sign. And that comes from the famous book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Having a, a, uh, a fulfillment there, partial fulfillment, but an ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hezekiah said, yeah, okay, I don't want to make that mistake. Let's, let's, let's go for a sign. Isaiah gives him the choice, and he said, well, let's take it that the shadow goes backwards 10 steps. So if you're thinking of steps either on where you're walking down steps or you're literally taking 10 steps, it's going to go backwards. And then look at verse 11. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Very interesting. So I don't know if that was meant to cause us to think of Ahaz who wouldn't ask for a sign. But anyway, this actually happened on the stairway of Ahaz. And so he had his sign and the sign confirmed Hezekiah's healing. Well, I'm going to stop there with the exposition and I do want to go to the applications. But I, I will say this. So we're not done with Hezekiah, and there is more that's going to happen. And one of the things that's going to happen is Hezekiah is going to write somewhat of a psalm, and it's only recorded in Isaiah after he is healed of the Lord. So we're going to go through that. That's kind of interesting. It emphasizes how we should thank the Lord when we pray and when he answers. All right, so let's ask this question, and we've certainly flirted with this idea through the book of Kings. Does the Lord heal today? Yes, he does. Let me make some comments, though. <clears throat> God heals if it is his will to heal in a particular situation. There is no guarantee that God will heal. And God will have accomplished his perfect will whether he heals or not heals. And one of the things that's just very offensive, and we've talked about this, is that there is a group out there, a name it and claim it, and they say you have to command the Lord to do it. Let me tell you, you don't command the Lord to do anything. And, and that right there shows us that their theology is faulty. You don't, you don't command the sovereign God. Well, but, but how does this help us with healing? Well, if it's his will, he will heal. If it's not his will, he will not heal. And uh, let's turn to John 11. We may have looked at this before, but I, I, this is so good. So even in regard to Jesus' answer about some of these things, 
We come to John chapter 11. And Jesus is talking about sickness and, and what could happen, and even if there is death. So this is John 11, verse 4, in the context of Lazarus. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So in other words, sometimes death, in the case of Jesus and his miracles to raise one from the dead, was to glorify. That was God's will, for him to die so that Jesus would raise him from the dead. Other times, the Lord's will is for someone to go home. Um, we, we'll talk about this in just a second, but what about faith healers? Let's insert now the idea of faith healers. Does God heal today by way of faith healers? Uh, no, I don't believe so at all. I think scripture says that, and I think, I think the cases that we see, there's not been one bona fide scientific proof that a faith healer healed. But there are many anecdotes that these men got caught as charlatans. Now, there was a gift of healing and sign gifts in the early church. I'm not denying them. But in this particular day and age, these sign gifts, I don't believe, are here anymore. I don't believe that they're needed anymore. Why would they have been needed in the first century? Well, the scriptures had not been put together. So if these healings were going to confirm the truth of God, okay, I get it. But what, what confirms the truth of God now? The scriptures. And also, too, we see the apostles doing um, some of the healing, and this was to confirm their apostolic authority. It was bona fide healing, and it was a miracle, a divine miracle that God did through them, and it says, can you do this? Well, if you can't do this, but he can do this, he must be my chosen spokesman. And the idea of the miracle was to get everybody's attention. <gasps> For what? Now listen to the word of the Lord. Now listen to the message of the Lord. Now, again, so we don't see any instances. And there, there was a book that came out years ago, and it was about this person and all their healings. And it looked like they had documented, you know, scientific documented um, records that they healed, they healed someone. But when someone investigated, not, none of those were the case. Now, does God heal? Yes. And can, can they be documented? Well, I, I mean, the doctor could end up scratching his head and he's going to write down, I, I don't know what happened, but they were sick a while ago and now they're not sick. God's people, he won't say this, but he could. God's people got together and prayed and God healed. So we, we've actually seen that even, even in our midst. And, and I think even in small ways, I mean, you don't just have to be at, the, at death's door for God to perform a healing. Um, 
again, we, we see this happening a lot. And I think we should thank the Lord. And we have thanked the Lord. Um, and I'll tell you what, when you're the one who is sick and you're the one who is at death's door, even though we're believers and we're going to go be with the Lord, you are very appreciative for the prayers of people. And I can't tell you, in fact, I heard it. I heard it this morning and I hear it all the time. Oh, yes, yes, I, I, yes, I did hear it this morning. Someone said, please tell the people at Grace Bible Church, thank you for your prayers. I feel your prayers. Your prayers are helping. So anyway, yeah, so he, he will do that. But even though God's people will pray, that's no guarantee that God is going to heal. Um, There's no guarantee. It all depends on what God's will is. Must God's healing come about without the aid of medicine? No. God is sovereign and powerful to heal outright or through natural means. Either way, healing is a miracle. Just because it appears mundane does not mean that healing is not a miracle. Can we ask for the health and or longer life for a person? Yes, you can ask. <laughs> you, you, it is permissible for you to ask, but whether it happens or not, that all depends on the Lord. And, and I will say there is a, there is just, just looking at my experience, you know, someone has cancer, they're at death's door. Um, the majority of the time, it's easy for all of us to see, no, it's just a matter of time. God can raise them up, and we've seen him raise them up, but most of the time, it's an indication that this person's time is coming to an end. Their work for the Lord is coming to an end. But, beloved, now we hate to see them go. We hate to say goodbye. But, beloved, it's not going from bad to worse. Um, it could be God's will for a believer to go home with the Lord because that is much better. That's what it says in Philippians. When Paul is trying to figure out, talking to the Philippians, whether he should stay or whether he should go, he says, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire, he says earlier, to minister to you, but having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You better believe it is. You better believe it is. So, uh, we can ask for health, and we can ask for a longer life. And, you know, I would say in the last couple of years, I have asked for God's healing. If there's a situation, I've, I've asked for God's healings. Um, you know, you're kind of afraid to do that because maybe somebody thinks you're, you're being charismatic because you're praying for a healing. No, I, I thought, that's ridiculous. No, you can pray for a healing. And if God is so merciful and will do so, he could intervene. But he has his will. And that's what he's going to carry out. And that's what we want anyway. And we need to be willing to accept his will. By the way, just some of those anecdotes by these faith healers. You know, um, uh, one involved uh, Benny Hinn Ministries, and you probably all heard of this. But years ago, the family of an elderly Oklahoma woman said that she died after she broke her hip at one of his faith healing services. 
Well, I guess it's possible to break your hip at a faith healing service, but I can't imagine how it is that you walk out of there with a broken hip at a faith healing service. And here's where it starts to get a little sticky. Uh, by the way, the family filed a $5 million lawsuit against this television evangelist who ran the service. However, the officials and leaders of the church said they denied the charges by the family because the woman had denied medical attention. And your point is, you're at a faith healing service. And, and um, I, you know, I don't know what went on in that conversation, but if it's a true bona fide faith healing service, first thing ought to happen is the faith healer should take his glasses off, and then he should be able to heal that person if it is a true bona fide faith healing service. And of course, it was not, and we hear many of those things. But does God heal? Yes, God does heal today. And even if no one prays, but, and it's his will, he can heal. But we see it mostly in our circle as God's people getting together and praying for healing. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot of those things uh, this past few years with COVID coming in. Man, we had, we had some people that were really at the threshold of, of death. And the Lord heard our prayers and they were, they were given a second chance. So anyway, this is what we find out from Hezekiah, and, and the Lord is intervened, and the Lord intervenes in our lives as well, but he will bring about his will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the demonstration of your power in the Old Testament. It ought to be giving us strength and knowing that you are in control, even of the things that we see over in Israel at the moment, Lord, you are in control. And Father, we, we thank you that you are in control, and yet even though you are in control, we have the privilege of asking. If it is according to your will, we will have the answers to that prayer. But Father, we, we, we thank you that we can apply these things to our own lives and our own theology and keeping it right into the biblical boundaries, and we'll thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, any thoughts or comments? It's a... It's a, uh, an area ripe with questions and, and controversy, but uh, any